is Carrie McDonald. Carrie is the author of Unschooled and also a few other things. What else do you do, Carrie? <laughs> Hi, Blake. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I'm the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. I'm also a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a frequent contributor at Forbes, and a board member at the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. Thank you so much for doing that for me. I would have stumbled over that many times. Uh, this leads directly into my first question for you, Carrie. Uh, you are always publishing something. Like whenever I go onto Facebook or I get a newsletter, there's something uh, from you, some new article, some new interview, some podcast. Uh, how do you find the time to be so prolific? Yeah, you know, I, I'm so lucky that I get to spend my time uh, pursuing my passions, right? Sort of doing what I write about and what I encourage other people to uh, enable their young, their children to do. Um, I feel like I'm also able to do that. I'm fortunate that my husband and I both work flexible schedules. And of course, our children, our four children are unschooled. Uh, and so we're not tied to the regimentation of a nine to five Monday through Friday schedule, and we're able to really um, make things work more flexibly and have the freedom to do that. Um, and, you know, my children, my three older children attend a part-time uh, self-directed learning center in the city. I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, um, and they have other classes that they're attending. So we're able to kind of squeeze our work in around all of that. Uh, and then I outsource where I can, you know, some other tasks, um, things like uh, house cleaning and grocery delivery and all of that. So definitely, okay. uh, definitely, not, you know, not, have some help. It's not, uh, it's not all me. Not, not ghostwriting. You don't have other people write your articles for you. <laughs> no, for the record. no, I, I definitely do all the writing and all the interviewing. Yeah. That's <laughs> that I, I outsource the other, the other things. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, it's really impressive. Um, and the four kids part, you know, people always say uh, unschooling is not the easy way. It's not the less time-consuming way to raise kids, but it sounds like you have employed the services of a, a self-directed learning center. Do they go to a, a liberated learner center or a Sudbury school or something else? You know, the, it, they go to a, a, a place called Parts and Crafts, which is a self-directed learning, learning center that um, was inspired, certainly, by Ken Danford's work at North Star and the Liberated Learners Network, uh, and they, you know, um, had some interactions with Ken in their early days. Um, but it's not part of that network. It's really more um, on a makerspace, hackerspace model. So the, the founders, uh, one of whom was from MIT and really got interested in uh, the makerspace movement and tinkering and taking things apart, putting things together and building things. Uh, and that's what they wanted to make the learning center be like. So they started actually running a summer camp based on that model uh, the founders also had inspiration from the free school movement, and a, a couple of the early staff members had worked at some free schools. So they had that kind of philosophy and approach. And they ran the summer camp for a while. And then uh, a group of parents said, gosh, you know, we really value this approach to learning, to education. If you run this as a full-time alternative to school, we'll pull our kids out of school and send them to you. And that was about 11 years ago now. So, uh, so it's a really great space. That makes me think of uh, Gaver Tully out near San Francisco, who I think also started a summer camp uh, around tinkering and then started the tinkering school and then started Brightworks uh, school 
out there. It seems to be a common path, perhaps. Uh, start a summer camp, get a bunch of kids interested in learning outside of conventional school, convince them they can do this full time, and then start a school or learning center. I think it's a good way of, um, if you have parents or entrepreneurs or educators interested in starting an alternative to school or um, creating something new, that starting with a summer camp or an after-school program or a vacation camp model can be a good entry point um, and, and then often can grow from there. Yeah, summer camp was so important. Uh, in my young life and also in my adult life, I found that it's it's a wonderful gateway into kind of the world of alternative education and convincing people that, you know, hey, why do kids love summer camp so much? It's because they love these kinds of activities, these kinds of freedoms, this uh, kind of relationship between adults and children. And why can't we bring that more into the, the, the school, the K through 12 realm? Um, okay, but we're not talking about summer camp. We're talking about <laughs> you and your life and your work, Carrie, and your wonderful book, Unschooled, which I got uh, the chance to read right as it came out. I downloaded it onto my Kindle and read it in one long flight uh, in the U.S. Uh, back in May 2019 when it was out. And it's just a wonderful, straightforward, no BS introduction to this, this entire world, this entire ecosystem. And so, uh, first of all, well done on the book. Thank and you. I want to hear, uh, what has the reception to the book been like? I think it's been really well received. Um, you know, so the book focuses on unschooling, really disentangling education from schooling, challenging the dominant mode of kind of coercive education where we dictate what young people should know and when, and instead really focus on interspace learning uh, driven by a young person's passions and goals and supporting those passions and goals um, through the wider resources of one's community. So the people, places, and things around those kids, um, digital resources, as well as the real resources, uh, and really the, the prominent place of adults in facilitating that process. There are a lot of books about unschooling out there more and more each year. And uh, what inspired you to write your book in particular? Or another way to say this is, why do you feel like this book needed to be written? And why now? Yeah, you know, I felt like a few reasons. I felt like um, more and more conventional schooling is moving down the path of standardization and testing uh, and conformity. And I felt like it was really important to share a different way of learning and a different way of being educated. And so it was really um, special for me to be able to spotlight the individuals, families, organizations, and unschooling alumni who have learned this way or who are creating spaces to help others to learn this way. So I felt like it was a great antidote in a lot of ways to the kind of coercive schooling that we, that we you know, so often uh, hear about and see um, expanding. Uh, so that was sort of the number one reason. I think the other, another piece of why I wanted to write the book and, and why now um, is that I think a lot of folks who, who know about self-directed education or unschooling uh, attribute it to John Holt, who, of course, coined the term unschooling in 1977 in his newsletter, Growing Without Schooling, which was the first newsletter for homeschooling families. And John Holt was, of course, as you know, a, a pioneer in the, in the modern homeschooling movement, was a social reformer, an educator, an author. 
Um, and then, so, you know, of course, we would think of unschooling as going back to John Holt in 1977. But I wanted to trace back to the early the origins of this idea of self-directed education or uh, individual self-determination, uh, freedom and responsibility, uh, freedom from coercion, autonomy. And so I go back really to the Enlightenment era and the writings of John Locke. Uh, and even in you know one of John Locke's earliest treatises was some thoughts concerning education, which he wrote in the late 17th century. And he even then talked about what we would consider today these ideas of gentle parenting and non-coercive learning. He even said, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but he said, you know, a child will learn three times as much when he is in tune as he will if he is dragged unwillingly to it. Uh, and this was really radical and revolutionary in the 17th century. Um, and of course, led to you know the the sort of dawn of the Enlightenment era and these ideas of of individual freedom and autonomy and self determination that that um, followed through over the following centuries, and then even in the 20th century, looking at uh, the origins of self directed education more recently. Uh, I trace this sort of um, breaking off of kind of the John Dewey educators and philosophers mm -hmm. definitely wanted, you know, something that was more experiential and more child focused and more um, relevant for young people. But I actually explain how self-directed education took a much different path sort of through Homer Lane and his influence on A.S. Neal, who was the founder of the Summerhill School uh, in England in 1921, and then on through the social reformers of the 1960s and 70s. So it was really nice to be able to, to trace that larger uh, historical path toward kind of our modern look at self-directed education. And then I'll just say the final you know, reason that I wanted to write the book and, and what was really, again, inspiring for me was um, highlighting these educational entrepreneurs who are, in many cases, in fact, in most of the cases in my book, were uh, public school teachers who left the classroom, became disillusioned by what they were seeing, and launched uh, these self-directed alternatives to school. And so I found that to be incredibly inspirational and, and felt that, that would, those stories needed to be shared uh, to hopefully encourage other educators to do the same thing. The history in your book is definitely stuff I haven't read elsewhere, and I appreciate how you, you traced it so far back. Um, and also, you mentioned so many different little alternatives to school, little alternative schools, homeschooling, unschooling, everything under the sun, and you kind of bring them all together and weave them together in a way that I've seen very few other writers do it. And so those are a few of the things um, I most appreciated Thank you. about the book. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what inspired you? I'm sorry. Let's go. Let's go back a little bit farther here. Um, where did you get into education in the first place? Like, did you have a, an early interest, or did you kind of have a different entry point? I did. So I went to K to twelve public schooling uh, and never really thought much about alternative education um, or teaching and learning. Even more specifically, I then. Went Went to college. I was an economics major as an undergraduate. But uh, through the lens of economics, I began to see that there were really limited choices for a lot of families in the area of education. I mean, we have this sort of monopoly system of mass schooling that limits choices for many, many families. And that uh, piqued my interest and started me thinking more about education. I became, I'd started taking uh, more education classes in college and 
became more interested in alternative education in particular. And uh, for a senior seminar in education, I had a chance to do an independent research project on a topic of my choice. And I, and I uh, had a classmate who had a family member that lived nearby who was homeschooling. And this intrigued me because I never knew a homeschooler, didn't know much about homeschooling. This was in the late 1990s, and homeschooling had just become legally recognized uh, throughout the United States mm -hmm. a few years mm -hmm. prior by 1993. So it was still relatively recent. But I remember uh, shadowing that family, that homeschooling family that semester, and just being uh, captivated by what I saw in, in terms of this authentic, immersive learning um, outside of schooling. And at that same time, I was also doing a student teaching practicum at a local public elementary school, uh, which was more familiar to me because, of course, I had gone through that, that same system. And I don't think I ever really appreciated the contrast between this kind of conventional um, schooling that most of us had gone through and then seeing this entirely new way of being educated outside of schooling. And so that's really what led my, to my interest, not only in alternative education, but alternatives to school, uh, and really thinking about learning without schooling. And then I went to graduate school in education policy at Harvard and became more interested in educational freedom and choice and more options for families. Let's talk about Harvard Grad School of Ed, because I imagine that if you go there and you're talking about this kind of stuff, like homeschooling, unschooling, radical alternative schools, people are going to look at you like you're a little bit off kilter. <laughs> because I imagine that the focus there is on solutions that can be implemented in the public sector that are highly scalable, that are much more in tune with kind of the, the, the common zeitgeist of, you know, we need to be encouraging STEM education, we need to be working with certain underserved communities. And then you're bringing in this thing that no one else is really talking about. Like, did you have much of a reception for these ideas at Harvard? So at the time that I went to Harvard, I was growing increasingly interested in sort of education choice more broadly. So I was often thinking about alternatives to school. Um, but you're right, there wasn't really a place for that uh, at the time. So if you were interested in any kind of alternatives or choice or educational freedom more generally, at the time, you're you were kind of focused on charter schools. That was sort of the mm -hmm. new the new thing uh, that was coming mm -hmm. on the scene. And the first charter school was commissioned in Minnesota in 1991. So kind of a mm -hmm. decade into that, and those were expanding. There was a lot of energy and excitement around that. And those were cons charter schools were considered to be um, these very experimental, um, you know, spaces for learning. Yeah. So there wasn't much beyond <laughs> that. But you know, it's interesting you bring up Harvard, and I think you're right that that I, the sort of the market really is um, getting educators ready for public schools because, of course, that's where most uh, of today's education is. So I think it's just a matter of sort of the demand for, you know, what kind of skills and uh, and learning do these graduate students need and want to be successful in the market. But it's interesting to note that John Holt in the 1960s taught a class at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. So when you think about it, back then, I think in the 60s, there were these real radical uh, education reformers. There was a lot of excitement both in the public system and outside of public schools um, around these alternative ideas. And then I think it faded throughout the you know later 1970s. And so again, by the time I got to Harvard, uh, if you were interested in anything innovative, charter schools were where you went. I remember taking some undergrad classes in education uh, at Berkeley around 2003, 2004, and that was also where a lot of the discussion centered was was charter schools and school choice, and that was 
when people thought of alternative education, that's the first place their heads went. But uh, I had to go digging myself to find the stuff that was actually really alternative. And now charter schools, uh, the way that most of them are implemented, just seem so tame in comparison. Do you feel that way too? I think that's right. I mean, you know, they are public schools. And so even though they have some more autonomy and and some more freedom um, than a district school, at the end of the day, they're still getting public money and have to abide by, um, you know, public standards and, and core competencies. So their their ability to truly be experimental, I think, is quite limited. Uh, all that being said, do you still find yourself defending charter schools and the charter school movement? Yeah, you know, I'm I, I defend any <laughs> options or any opportunities for families to have more choice. Um, and so, you know, I think that the more we can uh, encourage certainly legislation to lift caps on charter schools and um, and allow for that to be a pathway for families, we should do that. I mean, the, the idea that we have to, that, you know, over 80% of young people today are in an assigned district school and fewer than one third of their parents actually want them there, that's a huge choice gap. Uh, and I think it's systemic failure of our education system. There's a true mismatch between where parents want their kids to be educated and where they're actually being educated. And I think the, the, the more that we can close that choice gap, either in the public sector through charter schools or where more of my attention is focused is in the private sector, uh, I think you know that can only be a win for families. So let's talk about private sector and entrepreneurialism, because about two out of every three articles I see you publishing are about these uh, subjects. And you are just a huge fan and a big promoter of the idea that the private sector is where educational innovation is happening and where it can happen. Um, And there's many ways we could dig into this, but I, I feel like there's a story from your book Mm. Uh, which which developed uh, quite rapidly at the same time your book was being published that I, that really exemplifies perhaps uh, why <laughs> we shouldn't put too much faith into uh, public sector alternatives and that's the story of Powderhouse out there uh, in right near Boston. So would you mind yeah. recounting that story for us? Right. You know. So I'm pessimistic about. Um, innovation, experimentation, and particularly self-directed education in the, pu- in the public sector. You know, I hope I'm proven wrong, um, but, but I think past is prologue. I mean, going back even to what we were mentioning, the, the 1960s and, and early 1970s, when there was a lot of energy for um, mm. education experimentation, the open classroom movement, you know, there was a lot of, um, there, were, there was a lot of innovation that was, that was happening in public schools. The Parkway program in Philadelphia was known as the School Without Walls. Um, mm-hmm. Time magazine in 1970 called it the most interesting high school in America. And then, you know, within a decade, that program was reabsorbed into the larger district. Uh, and I think you see that time and again with any kind mm-hmm. of, with these kinds of public school um, initiatives is there's often a lot of excitement initially, and then they just ultimately get reabsorbed into the larger system. And and I think we're seeing that again uh, in the modern era. So I talk about 
uh, in the book, I talk about the Powder House School. It was actually interesting because as I was writing the book and interviewing the, the folks that were involved in this Powder House Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, I, you know, thought, I felt like this was the this was the thing that was going to prove that I was wrong, that this actually could happen in public schools. Um, and so I can give you a little bit of this history and, and then sort of end with the bang of, of what ultimately happened. So uh, Powder House was launched or the idea for Powder House was launched about seven years ago. Um, one of the co-founders and the main leader of the school is um, a guy named Alec Resnick, who is an MIT grad and at MIT, especially at the MIT Media Lab. Um, became interested in these ideas around education reform and especially non-coercive self-directed education. He was reading books by John Holt and Yvonne Illich's Deschooling Society and, and was really thinking that way around uh, self-directed learning and non-coercion. And so uh, he had the opportunity with the support of the mayor of the city uh, and the superintendent to create this new school that was going to be a fully public uh, district high school in Somerville, Massachusetts, a non-charter school. So it would actually be a, a, a full district school. Um, that would implement these ideas of self-directed education that you would be able to, uh, young people would be able to chart their own course and take classes that interested them and pursue projects that were meaningful to them and then um, map back to core competencies as opposed to using the core competencies to direct that learning. And so it was really, really exciting. In fact, they won a $10 million um, innovation grant from XQ Super Schools because the idea was so innovative and exciting. There was a lot of energy around it. Um, and as my book went to print, <laughs> Powderhouse was on track to open this past September, September of 2019. And, um, and they, uh, they had secured uh, teachers union approval that took a long time. And that was a big hurdle. So they had kind of jumped over a lot of these hurdles uh, through the process of founding the school. And then suddenly, uh, in March of 2019, uh, so this just this past year, uh, right before my book came out, the school committee of the uh, city of Somerville uh, unanimously voted not to approve Powder House's opening this fall. And people were outraged. I mean, it was just so shocking because, again, they felt like things were moving along quite well and had all of this support. And essentially what the... And you can read about this at the Boston NPR um, uh, uh, website. Essentially, what they what they the school committee said was, "Look, we can't uh, approve a school for 150 kids when we have 5,000 kids to think about." And I think this is the the problem with trying to make an impact within the public sector is there's this idea that if not everyone can have it, then no one can have it. And of course, that's just not how innovation works, right? I mean, if we, I often use the anecdote or the example of cell phones. Cell phones, when Motorola initially, you know, created the first kind of commercial cell phone, imagine if they said, well, we can't do this because not everyone's going to have access to the cell phone. So we can't create the cell phone or produce the cell phone. Now we have 5 billion people with cell phones. Cell phones, because that's how innovation works. It, it's when you innovate initially, they're, they're, not everyone may have something, but it scales and it expands. And then pretty soon um, it can be available to almost everybody. Uh, and, and I just think that it's sort of backwards within the public model. 
Yeah, and and of course, students are not cell phones. There's a few differences in in the innovation analogy there, but I think broadly speaking, uh, it, you're correct. And and I was shocked by that decision too. I read through the the, the minutes of the meeting, and you're right. They essentially said this because this can't work for everyone immediately, and because slightly more resources will be diverted towards these 150 lucky students who will get to experience this model first, we're canceling it. I mean, they they had a dream team of, of people, of resources, of, you know, long-term community investment. Like, if it was going to happen anywhere, it was going to happen there and it was going to happen then. And it didn't happen. It's uh, truly shocking. And, and, and it makes me think, man, I'm glad that I, I invest in, in promoting all of these kind of much smaller scale private sector alternatives, these little nonprofits, these little centers started by, you know, disgruntled ex-school teachers, because, yeah, a lot of those fail too. Um, you know, after late 60s, early 70s free school boom, the vast majority of those schools failed when a few of them stuck around, like the Sudbury Valley School. Um, and so it's not like they have a much better track record, but um, not so much money is wasted. Not so many resources are are kind of tossed into the wind like it seemed to happen with the, the powder house debacle. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's it's unfortunate. And I, I think that the founders are still trying to iterate and see if they can make something happen. Um, but yeah, I, I believe that most of our innovation in education, as in other sectors, will happen through um, through private enterprise. And you have a special connection to the world of private enterprise because you're affiliated with uh, the Foundation for Economic Education and Cato. Both of these are, are you know, very big on the, the line of, of entrepreneurialism is the answer to, to innovation and to, to many other uh, challenges in society. So can you tell us briefly about kind of how you became affiliated with these organizations and kind of what, what drew you toward them? Right. So... Um both the Foundation for Economic Education fee and the Cato Institute are leading libertarian think tanks that value individual freedom, promote the ideas of limited government, prosperity through free markets, and peace. And those ideas really resonated with me, and I think have, have resume, resonated with me for a really long time. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, of course, approach um, education from that lens of looking at how do we maximize individual freedom? How do we um, reduce government intervention and regulation, particularly of schools or of education enterprises, to allow for freedom and choice? Uh, and and then you know how do we do that and encourage more entrepreneurship in this area to really um, drive these kinds of changes? Uh, so those so these two organizations, of course, you know, sort of are well known in um, in supporting these principles of a free society, and I and I feel really privileged to be involved with them. And I find that you exist at a fascinating crossroads between different kind of approaches and ideologies because a lot of people from all different backgrounds can get behind the basic idea of like there should be more individualized education. But then as soon as we start talking about how to to institute that, the kind of mechanisms, then people will will immediately decamp into separate tribes. And I think homeschooling is a wonderful example of of how these paths can cross over so much. There's so many different political affiliations that that rally behind homeschooling, 
um, I, I'd say more of the criticism of homeschooling comes from the, the left than the right. Mm. Um, and also it, in the, the world that you describe in your book, Unschooled, I'd say is more dominated by thinkers kind of on the left who come from um, maybe a more uh, Ivan Illich uh, group of, of, of criticism than from uh, a John Locke, you know, style criticism. And so uh, how has this worked out for you in terms of kind of finding your, your people or your ideological home in this movement? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's where it, it's so nice to be able to talk about the work that the Alliance for Self-Directed Education does. I mentioned that I'm a board member there, and I, along with Peter Gray, who's uh, the Boston College psychology professor who wrote the book Free to Learn, and of course is a, a, a big advocate for uh, non-coercive self-directed learning. He wrote the foreword to my unschooled book. Um, and Akila Richards uh, as well is on the board. We have just such an amazing team. And I think what what's so um, exciting about the work that the Alliance for Self-Directed Education does is we say, look, there we recognize that people coming at self-directed education uh, come at this from a, a whole diverse assortment of political worldviews, um, values, backgrounds, beliefs, experiences, but on this one issue of self-directed education and non-coercive learning, we can all agree. We can all come together. We might not be able to come together on all of these other issues, but on this particular issue of, of creating more freedom for, for young people, of encouraging uh, interspace learning, of um, eliminating coercion and compulsion in education. That's where we all come together uh, and in this sort of unified vision. And I think that's what's been really exciting, um, that we don't have to agree in all these other policy areas, but in this one particular approach to education, uh, we're all very much aligned. Hmm. Carrie, you've used this phrase, I think it's interspace learning a few times. Is that correct? I don't know that I've used interspace. No, I don't know what that is. <laughs> all right. All right. Maybe I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what I'm talking about then. Um, yeah, I agree. ASDE, uh, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, seems to be filling a unique uh, niche right there. And were you there from the, the very beginning? Were you one of the founding board members? Yeah, so I can tell you a little bit of the background of the Alliance for Self-Directed ed Education. So it, back in the spring of 2013, um, there was a group uh, or a lecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Education called Alternatives to Compulsory Education. And it was Peter Gray uh, and some other folks, Pat Ferenga, who runs John Holt Associates, uh, Kevin Soling, who is the director of the War on Kids documentary, and Peter Bergson, who created um, two learning centers in, in Pennsylvania, including one of the first ones, self-directed learning centers around, called Open Connections. And so this was just the sort of uh, impromptu um, uh, lecture it, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education ended up being standing room only. There was so much interest in it. And they were talking about at the time, you know, kind of launching some, some new initiative uh, around these ideas of alternatives to school and self-directed learning. And so I approached the group after and said, I'd love to get involved. Um, and that began what's really become a really wonderful relationship and, and long time commitment to these ideas. So we started with creating a website um, soon after that conference in 2013 called alternatives to school.com. But then quickly realized, I think within a couple of years or, or less, that we wanted to be a nonprofit, a recognized 501c3 nonprofit organization 
to really advocate for the ideas of self-directed education, to expand um, these learning possibilities to more and more families, to find ways to make them more accessible to more families, um, so that any family or any child who wanted to learn this way was, was it would be able to, uh, and to encourage more of these self-directed learning centers and schools to open and prosper. Um, and so that's what we've continued to do now uh, for the last several years um, through the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. Uh, that's a lovely history. And I remember uh, being at the Arrow Conference, I think in 2013, and Peter Gray and Peter Bergson and someone else was talking about uh, starting Alternatives to School, uh, the website. They sounded very excited. And and I followed the progress of it for a while and, and noticed that it lost some steam um, after an initial uh, strong start. And so that's really cool to hear that that, that energy, that momentum was turned into a, a more formal direction. And that's what we have now. I, I just right. donated some money to the Alliance. Oh, good. I, yes. Because they're doing that, this fundraising, dri- fundraising drive. So thank you. Anyone yeah. else out there who feels strong about this mission, do the it's, same. Thank you so much, Blake. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we, we definitely try to support members and, um, and, really expand these these options and create local support groups for families as well as online forums and doing some really good work. But yeah, the, the work of Alternatives to School ultimately migrated into the much larger and I think more impactful work of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which uh, your listeners can visit at self-directed.org. Let's talk about what is next for you. I, I saw on Facebook you said, well, my book's doing great. What's the next book I should write? Which I thought was a wonderful thing to, to read. And uh, so do you have another book in the works? I think I will at some point. <laughs> but I've put, uh, oh, okay. I've, I've put some, some books, uh, the next book on hold, to work on some other kind of entrepreneurial initiatives going forward. I, I oh. definitely think that there will be another book uh, as you know, as a prolific writer and author, you know, once you once you start writing books, it's hard to stop. Um, but yeah, put that on hold <laughs> right now. Yeah. Okay. So what's this other thing you're working on? Some sort of ed tech project? Right. So as you mentioned, I mean, I've been writing about alternatives to school and innovative K to twelve learning models for a long time. My my column at Forbes highlights a lot of these. Uh, experimental K-12 learning models outside of the conventional classroom. It spotlights disruptive innovation in education. And I think I I felt like I want to be part of that. I don't want to just be writing about it, talking about it, although I do love to do that as well and will continue to do that. But I actually wanted to be one of those disruptors and one of those entrepreneurs who could uh, create an alternative to school. And so I've teamed up with uh, a really amazing group of tech entrepreneurs in the Boston area, and we're launching uh, a new full-time in-person alternative to school that we really think is going to close this choice gap by providing an al- an affordable uh, alternative to school to many more families. So there'll be more information as as the uh, startup gets going and gets launched, uh, you know, definitely stay tuned uh, over the, I would say, winter and and early spring months as we kind of roll it out. But it's uh, exciting to be here at the ground level. Oh, my gosh, you're killing me, Carrie. I have to, like, try to extract a little bit more information out of you. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's going to be in person. It's going to be an alternative, like a physical place kids can go, but you're also bringing tech people into this? Well, we're looking at, you know, creating a, a tech platform. So the technology will be the innovation enabler. It'll be the connector between parents and educators and learners, but it won't be um, an online learning program. I mean, I think if you look at in a lot of the, world, the ed tech space right now, what happens is... Um, there's this like new software package or new, um, you know, online approach to learning that, that promises to revolutionize education uh, with this one package. So oh, this math, you know, software will revolutionize math education or uh, that kind of thing. And I, and I think what my co-founders and I really feel strongly about is that there's uh, an element of, of human connection that gets lost when we focus just on online learning. Um, so what we really want is the, the, the technology be, to be the platform, to be the connector, but not to be the delivery mechanism for young people. Um, mm. and, and again, to, to use, to kind of maximize the, the power of technology to bring people together, but then not lose sight of the real humanity of teaching and learning, um, mm in that more, uh, live experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you might be the perfect person to do this. You have experience with self-directed learning centers, your kids attend one of them and you've written extensively about them. I've also seen you publish articles about out school. And so you're, you're familiar with like entirely online, uh, content, you know, delivery systems that, and, and those are really popular with homeschoolers, for example. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, I'm going to venture into territory where I'm, I'm, I might be slightly out of my depth here, but, um, but there have been some, some schools in San Francisco and in New York that are very expensive private schools. I'm thinking of alt school, for example, mm. that really try hard to integrate technology into everything they do. And I remember reading some kind of freaky news stories about how they are trying to they are monitoring everything the kids do. They are putting a number on everything they're doing, and that's their version of individualizing the education. Mm. And I'm wondering if you have a take on, well, first of all, is it going to be another alt school? Is it going to cost $40,000 a year and be for like wealthy tech people? Uh, or is it going to be something a bit different? Uh, we're aiming for it to be around $7,200 a year for a full-time alternative alternative to school, uh, which wow. is Great. typically one third to one half of existing private options. Um, and we're looking at this occurring through really empowering educators and parents. Um, so I can't say too much more about it where we have some uh. initial investors interested uh, and we're, we're getting <laughs> this going. Um, but I think it could really, you know, be an incredible alternative to school that that doesn't rely on, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the issue with some of these these alternatives to school and also what makes many of them more expensive is because they're relying on scaling, you know, one location with a group of teachers and a group of students and then mm -hmm. trying to replicate that. Um, and some networks are having real success with doing that affordably. I write often about Acton Academy and uh, Prenda Learning, just wrote about them recently for Forbes. And they are able to, again, sort of uh, scale individual schools or individual centers more affordably. 
Um, but I think we're looking even bigger and more disruptive than that uh, to really reach more people mm. in, in innovative ways. So more to come. Oh my. I am like a fish with a big old hook in my <laughs> cheek. And all you have to do is reel in the line. Well, we'll have to talk I, we again in a couple months. <laughs> I, I, was, I was about to say, let's do another podcast. We'll talk about your new school venture tech yeah. thingy. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, anything else coming up for you that we should know about, Carrie? No, I, again, I'm just uh, thrilled that, that you've donated to the Alliance for Self-Directed Education and encourage your, your listeners to go check out the Alliance at self-directed.org to learn more about non-coercive self-directed education. And you have about 20 different online bios. <laughs> Where is the easiest one place for yeah. people to find your work and to follow your work. Yes, writing. the best place to visit is fee.org slash carry. So F-E-E uh, dot org slash carry, K-E-R-R-Y. You can get links to all my social media accounts there, all my articles at the Foundation for Economic Education, as well as at Forbes, and send me off an email. And go read Carrie's book, Unschooled. It's wonderful. Thanks, uh, Carrie, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it was great to be with you. Thanks. <laughs>